just as I am. Welcome to the Gospel Saves Podcast, a program that discusses all matters related to the Christian faith. Please visit thegospelsaves.me. You can also visit The Gospel Saves on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. And Jocko Willink was one of the most beloved Navy SEAL commanders in the most recent Iraq war. During the Battle of Ramadi, his team fell victim to a blue-on-blue incident when friendly fire killed an Iraqi soldier and wounded several others, including a Navy SEAL. In the aftermath, Willink found many reasons for the failures, but he realized the blame fell on his shoulders. All responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. He goes on to observe, As individuals, we often attribute the success of others to luck or circumstances and make excuses for our own failures and the failures of our team. We blame our own poor performance on bad luck, circumstances beyond our control, or poorly performing subordinates, anyone but ourselves. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept. And taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. But doing just that is an absolute necessity to learning, growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance. This is what Willink calls extreme ownership. His philosophy is all members of a group must take individual responsibility for the failures of the group, even if one is not convinced he or she contributed to the failure. I would venture to guess that all of us have experienced the temptation to deflect personal responsibility and blame others. It's a carnal tendency as old as the Garden of Eden. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate, said Adam to God. You gave her to me, God, and look what happened. Jesus places this tendency in the mouth of the man who blamed his master for his failure to invest his mina. The man says, For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Lord, it's all your fault that I failed. If you were a little nicer, I could have turned a profit. So we all have this weakness, this temptation to deflect responsibility, for our actions. When we allow this tendency to gain control, it leads to a very destructive mentality described as victimhood. Victimhood is the belief that one's life is entirely under the control of forces outside oneself, such as fate, luck, or the mercy of other people. Those trapped in a victimhood mentality display high sensitivity to slights, Terms like microaggressions and trigger warnings are examples of the thin skin our culture has developed in recent years. The victimhood mentality leads to a tendency to handle conflicts through third parties, a tendency especially prevalent on college campuses. Rather than engage offensive students or professors in dialogue, students demand solutions from administrators or legal authorities. 
Victimhood also seeks to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve assistance. In her book, iGen, Jean Twinge writes, As recently as 1980, psychiatrists used the word trauma to describe only events outside the range of the usual human experience. Now, however, many more events are included in the official list, and lay people use the word trauma to describe experiences such as a bad hair day and seeing chalked words supporting a presidential candidate, as happened at Emory when Trump 2016 was written on the sidewalks and students protested yelling, We are in pain. In the Google Books database, the use of the word trauma quadrupled between 1965 and 2005. This is a crucial point. One does not have to be a victim in order to adopt a victimhood mentality. Ezekiel 18 offers a biblical example of a culture which sees itself as a victim. Now, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel, but he lived and prophesied in a different part of Babylon. God revealed himself in fantastic visions through Ezekiel. But he also sent the prophet to correct erroneous thinking among the first generation of captives. One example was the popular proverb circulating among the people, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Ezekiel 18 verse 2. Here is what they meant by the proverb. Our fathers have sinned and it's their fault we are in captivity. The generation perpetuating this narrative, though, was hardly innocent. Ezekiel records that his first vision took place in 597 BC, a little more than a decade before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 11 record a fantastic series of visions the prophet experienced on September 17, 592 BC. By the Spirit, Ezekiel is transported back to Jerusalem to witness the pagan worship taking place in the temple. He found every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. At the north gate to the Lord's house, he saw women weeping for Tammuz, the Babylonian fertility god, who supposedly died each year at the height of the summer heat and then rose each spring. Remember, it's September. It's the end of summer. Ezekiel sees 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. So in perpetuating this narrative, we're in Babylon because of our father's unfaithfulness. The captives in Babylon were completely ignoring their generation's responsibility. And this is one of the interesting features of the victimhood mentality. People trapped in this mentality perceive themselves as having an immaculate morality and view everyone else as being immoral. God spends the rest of chapter 18 countering the narrative by denying that we inherit guilt for sins from previous generations. Or to put it another way, it's not mom and dad's fault our lives stink. God confronts this narrative with a simple, blunt message— Stop blaming others for your current predicament because you are far from an innocent party. Ezekiel 18, 29-32 is a case in point. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? 
Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. Accept responsibility for your sins, turn away from them, take your consequences, and live righteously, says God to the Jews living in Babylon. Now, Scripture contrasts the generation of Babylonian captives with two examples who accepted full responsibility for the sins of their fathers. Josiah, son of the wicked king Ammon, ascended to the throne of Judah at a young age and endeavored to rule his people in righteousness. Because of generations of neglect, Josiah never read the book of the law prior to the 18th year of his reign. The condemnation of idolatry and the warnings of impending doom shook Josiah to his core when he finally read them. And because the king was penitent when he heard the words of the law, God spared Josiah's generation from the catastrophe that awaited. Now, Josiah could have resorted to blaming his forefathers. He does acknowledge their responsibility in 2 Kings 22.13, mourning how the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Because the Lord promised to withhold judgment during the days of Josiah, the king could have kicked the can down the road. Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather, when he learned that Judah would be conquered in future generations, said, The word of the Lord is good. Will there not be peace and truth, at least in my days? So Josiah could have said, well, at least trouble's not going to happen to me. And he could have maintained the status quo by turning a blind eye to the idolatry of the people. Asa and Jehoash and Amaziah were all considered good kings, and yet they allowed the worship of idols to continue in the high place. Of course, comparing the time of Josiah with these predecessors is not an apples-to-apples comparison. The situation had grown worse under Josiah's grandfather Manasseh, so much so that his reign is consistently depicted as Judah's low point. Regardless, other good kings either ignored or disregarded what was taking place at the high places in spite of the warnings from Scripture. Though Josiah acknowledged the culpability of previous generations— His full-scale restoration of Judah, described in 2 Kings 23, reveals a man who, in the words of Jocko Willink, took extreme ownership. He swears to abide by the covenant God formed with Moses and demands the nation's leading men to do likewise. He eradicates idolatry in all of its many forms from the land. He restores the worship of Jehovah, including feasts like the Passover, which have been neglected for generations. Josiah was not responsible for the mess Judah was in, but he assumed full responsibility and acted accordingly. Daniel 9 is an impressive example of a righteous man accepting responsibility for sins that were not his own. Reading what we call Jeremiah 25 spurs Daniel to offer intercessory prayer on behalf of his people. The elderly prophet begs God to remember the promises made some seven decades ago and deliver Israel from her captivity. 
Among the many remarkable features of the prayer are the number of instances Daniel accepts responsibility for the actions of others. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, he says in verse 5. Neither have we heeded your servants the prophets, he says in verse 6. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways which he set before us by his servants the prophets, he says in verse 10. But the best example of the prophet holding himself accountable is in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, Daniel speaks as if he had a hand in the fallen state of his people. Now, please remember, Daniel was a young man when the Babylonians first took him captive. It is doubtful he was personally responsible for the sins he confesses before God, and yet this righteous man places himself among the rebellious, the wicked, and the obstinate. Why? Because when a community fails, every member of the community must hold themselves accountable for the failure. Daniel willingly accepted responsibility not only for his own sins, but also for the sins of others. We have sinned, we have rebelled, we have not listened. While many in his generation refused to accept responsibility and resorted to blaming others, Daniel humbly and courageously numbered himself among the transgressors and begged God for redemption. So in the examples of Daniel and Josiah, we see two men who suffered the consequences for others' sins, and yet they accepted responsibility, taking extreme ownership with both humility and courage. Thanks for listening to the Gospel Saves podcast. If you found this program useful, please visit thegospelsaves.me to find blogs, videos, and Bible studies. If you enjoyed the music on this podcast, please visit acapeldridge.com. You can also find Acapeldridge on Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook. May God bless you as you seek to know His perfect will.